0: chapter 10. I want to say a few things about understanding how to read the literature of scripture. Yes, the Bible is comprised of, 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 of many, I don't want to debate the criticisms of, of things, but the Bible is comprised of many different writings of many different types. A type of writing is also known as a genre or a type of literature. You have poetry, you have prophecy, you have instruction or didactics, teachings. You have all manner of, of narratives, and in those narratives you have explanations. Narratives: is just a story. This happened. Here's a historical record. You have proclamation. You have praise, hymns, songs. And everything in between and in all of that, like if you read the letter to Ephesians and you see psalms and doxologies and instruction and narratives and all sorts of, but it in and of itself is a teaching. It's It's something that is taught for us. And so the scripture then comes together supernaturally, purposed by God, that we may know him as he has revealed himself in his love for his people through Jesus Christ his son alone. Hebrews chapter 1 teaches us that, among other things, but explicitly. God, in many times, in many ways, has spoken to us, taught us, instructed us, revealed himself to us through the prophets, to our fathers, and through other means, in many ways, through the prophets. But in these days, in these last days, he speaks to us through his Son. So then when we look at the Old Testament, we see, for example, like the life of Joseph, we see Moses, we see David, we see Noah... We see Ruth, we see the judges, we see Samuel, we see all the things that take place, and we understand them in their context as an experience given to us historically of people who, by God's purposes, have been recorded concerning their lives. But once we see the revelation of the apostles in the New Testament, Once we see the allusion and what that means, not illusion, but allusion of referring back to the Old Testament writings and the Old Testament people and the Old Testament prophets and the Old Testament happenings. And see that how the apostles and even the Lord Jesus himself ascribes these things and the details and the outcomes and the pictures and the types and the shadows, the metaphors to himself, to Jesus. Then we begin to realize just what providence is. We begin to understand sovereignty. We begin to understand revelation and prophecy. We know that when God spoke to Abraham and he said, I will make you a father of many nations, that your children will be greater than the sands on the seashore. But beloved, I've had infinite amount of sand in my car coming from the beach before. So I can't imagine how much more sand is there. It's a picture of God's infinite purposes in the life of Abraham explicitly to show him the nature of his power and promises for he and his wife, period, so that they would trust in God's promise to bring them a son whose name was Isaac, and in that son, It was literally fulfilled in time for a purpose to establish some nation who was not a nation, who were no people, Chaldeans from Ur, pagans of the world, to become a people who were not a people so that God in the picture of humanity and human history could reveal the reality of the depths of the spiritually unknowable redemption through Jesus Christ. So we know that the true Isaac is Jesus, but there was also a real Isaac. So when the Old Testament writers spoke and wrote and existed in their history, they were not coming out being creative and saying, I'm going to write this story about me, but it's really about Jesus. They had no idea. And they're not myths and legends. They're not stories made up so that we can have Aesop's fables to relate to Jesus coming. They are about Christ. Always. But they are also about these people and God's purposes in these people to point to Christ. So we learn what God did with them and in them and through them and for them and then we learn the temporal blessings that came from that, and that all of the outcome, even the fall of humanity, is an attempt to show us the sufficiency of the Savior, Jesus Christ, the God-man. So let me warn you in two ways. I want to warn you, church, to be very, 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 and can I say that again, very leery of someone who insists that there is no historical purposes in the Old Testament. And I want you to be very, 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 very leery of someone who says that there is no Christological purposes in the stories of the Old Testament. You see what I'm saying there? When someone hammers a nail into one of those at the cost of the other, they are in error. So when someone says you need to live like David, that's not why David was written. You need to pray like David, that's not why. I don't want to pray like David. I don't want to complain like David. I do better than David in the complaining area. I'm better than David. I don't want to be like Moses. I don't want to be like Paul. I don't want anything to do with what these men had to deal with in life. God, give me the life I have a hundred times and all of its pain. Don't give me this. I don't want the experience to be a poet like David. You see? But the point is for us not to see and go, okay, how can I transform my life to be like David? We can learn from David. And we can learn in Psalm 40 where David in his own voice and through the, through the hard, heartache of his own tears cried out to the Lord and gives us a picture of God working in his life so that we can say, ha-ha, God worked in David's life, God God can work in my life. And then, ultimately, as the Lord teaches us through the apostles, only through the apostles, we can look at Psalms, we can look at the Psalms, we can look at Samuel, we can see the life of David, we can see the poetry of David, and we can go, wow. You know the only true David is Jesus? You know the only true blessing is Jesus? You know the only true life is Jesus? You know the only true treasure is Jesus? You know the only true wealth is Jesus? You know the only true healing is Jesus? It's the point. So we bring, and that's what the Psalms do. The Psalm talks about a tangible problem, a tangible solution, a tangible request, a cry to God. God hears the cry. He says, okay, that's my son. I'm going to heal his land. I'm going to heal his purse. I'm going to heal his problems, or maybe I won't, but I'm going to give him joy in the midst of them. And then we can, we can stand on the promises of God. That's why they're written. And then we step back and we go, but ultimately that's all temporary because it points to Jesus Christ. So I want you to be aware of that because I get a lot of that. I get a lot of questions concerning that. Am I supposed to look at this as a Christological prophecy or as a real event and principle that David had? Yes, you are. There's no or there, it's and. Just like Abraham's prophecy by God, all Abraham understood it was about a boy he was going to get from an old woman who didn't believe it herself, and so Hagar got involved. And Ishmael was born. You see? And we see Paul in Galatians, and it's writing to the Galatians, we see him expressing what that really ended up becoming, what it was all about. So understand that. Understand that as we go through these psalms, I'm going to teach a few psalms. I want to teach some more out of the Old Testament in the months to come, maybe, and get back into Genesis a little bit. And and so, you know, I just I want you not to get caught up in this either or idea. I'm not going to teach you principles. At the same time, there are a lot of people in the world today that think there is nothing spiritual to be gained out of the New Testament except learning some cognitive exercises and say, "Oh, we got understanding. You know what? Salvation is not about having the brain knowledge of understanding the literature. Salvation is knowing God through Jesus Christ, and that's a divine work. It's not something you can muster and choose to do. It's something that God grants you. Faith is a gift of God that's supernaturally working in us every second of the day because of my faith rest in my understanding and comprehension and apprehension and then I say oh God thank you for giving me the understanding I'm no different than the Pharisee it says thank you God that I'm not like the publican almost said the republican (laughs) thank you God that I'm not like the tax collector no thank you God for your grace for your mercy, for your life, for your son, for Jesus, for the cross. Thank you, God, for saving me in spite of me and keeping me in spite of my faithlessness. See how faith rests? There are brothers and sisters we have in the faith that live in absolute turmoil every single day because they're constantly trying to work out their salvation in their own comprehension, in their own way. And they know the truth, but they still fight the flesh Beloved, we are going to fight the flesh. And so there is a need for us to learn how to live in the flesh. And that's one of the reasons the New Testament is written to us so that we may understand what is prudent and profitable and praiseworthy that we may live it out. That's why I read Romans chapter 12 today. Romans chapter 12 is not a Christological Christological treatise. What I mean by that is it's not this long and dragged out metaphorical expression of who Jesus is. We've already got that. It's an application thereof. Because of Christ, who made reconciliation through his death. As long as it is up to you, be at peace with all people. You see? Have this attitude. Therefore. They're not salvific, it has nothing to do with salvation. You spend $1,800 on a new carpet for your for your house. You take your shoes off the first few months, right? The first few days, maybe. I don't walk on my carpet. we are got a new rule. You buy a shoe rack, you know. Six months in, shoe rack's broken. Mud stains all over it. Cats pulled up all... I mean, you know. Ah, we tried. You still got carpet. It just looks like crap. And sometimes that's what our faith looks like. We, we're still beloved. We're still elect we're still saved we're still born again we're still sealed by the spirit of God because Christ bought us he doesn't do refunds he doesn't do exchanges we're not on layaway he purchased us and so there's nothing that can take us away from the love of God nothing whatsoever but boy does our sometimes our lives look like we don't care about that grace and if we examined it very closely we would all say, you know, I think I purposely messed up this flooring. That's what Paul talks about. Should we sin that grace may abound? (laughs) Absolutely not. That's blasphemous in its ideology, but it's not deathly, except in the temporal sense. And why? Well, Psalm 40 gives us the essence of that. We are weak, broken, broken helpless, needy, emotional people. I don't care who you are. You can put on the airs, you can you can stand up and project yourself as this confident together thing, but you are not. We are not. Training takes over. We can be stoic on the outside, we can fight against the things that we think and feel and desire and, and fear on the inside. But ultimately, we are people as it teaches us. In Psalm 40, verse 17, as for me, I am poor, I am needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. He, you, Lord, are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O God. And Jesus Christ is also Psalm 40:17. The God of glory coming into humanity, laying down, being subject to be like the creation, became poor and needy. But the Father took thought of him. You see this in Hebrews, right? This text, I mean, it refers to Paul, the writer of Hebrews, uses this text to refer to Christ in Hebrews. So then we can say, wow, now we can see a little bit deeply. So we can learn and be encouraged by it. Now we can rejoice in it. Now we can be equipped in it. Now we can begin to see. So it is about studying Christ. It is about knowing Christ at every turn, isn't it? But it's also about discipline. Not to prove, I mean, I know a lot of people who are living an incredible Christ-like life, but are far from Him. If your assurance is set up in the context of how well you're doing certain things and how well you've put away certain things that you think are bad, I'm here to tell you that I could biblically sit down with you over a couple of hours and show you that probably 90% of everything you've given up is not sin anyway. (laughs) But the biggest sin is the fact that you think you're better off by not having these things in your life. Because I can prove to you that you have this disdain in your own unconscious life. You see somebody doing what you used to do, you go, man, I ain't like that no more. Thank you, God. You think it's a praiseworthy thing, but that very example is is an example of condemnation in the context of the New Testament. And then when we really do see the sin in our life, they go, oh, no. I must be lost. You're not lost. Christ saved you. And so we we need to know that our assurance is in the, the solid promise of Christ. He paid for the sins of his people. It is finished. And how God works out his doing in the life of his people to bring them to the knowledge of their redemption and to give them faith concerning their justification, concerning their eternal hope, concerning their redemption, concerning their adoption and everything else. It is God's business. And then we work together and we walk together and we live together, serving one another, loving one another, putting up with one another, confronting one another. As we keep our relationships intact for the sake of Christ, who has bought us with his blood. So we take the table at the end of every service, every single week, as much as we're able to remind us of whose we are and what we are as the body. Psalm 40. Last week we got, I don't know, did we get through verse 5? Let's read some. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied. Oh, Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us, none can compare with you. I I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. But then I said, behold, I've come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me, I delight to do your will. O oh, my God, your law is within my heart. I've told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I've spoken of your faithfulness and of your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head, and my heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those who put to shame and disappointed altogether, who seek to snatch away my life, let those be turned back and brought to dishonor, who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame, who say to me, Aha! Aha! I got you! But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Oh, do not delay. Oh, my God. I added some O's in there, I think. This is good stuff. And we got through, I think we just got through verse 3 last week. But we're looking at this text and these themes that I talked about. Remember Psalm 37, 38, 39 talking about how uh, we wait upon the Lord, we wait upon the Lord and then we look inside as we're waiting upon the Lord, we start to think what have I done to get here? Look how bad I am. Or look how good I am. Oh, if I could just do this, God would do this like this, some quid pro quo garbage. And there is some obedience that brings blessing. There are some conditional things that are required. If you want to live at peace with people, you've got to treat people peacefully. If you're always slapping them, how you doing? You know, we're not slapping people and expecting them to want to hang out with us. And then Psalm 40 begins this theme of, of knowing the power of God as we wait. He does answer. But isn't that the way it is? I mean, we don't want to wait at the drive-thru. We don't want to wait at the dry cleaners. We don't want to wait for our driver's license or any other dr- that I could come up with. We don't want to wait. We don't want to wait. We want it now, we want it yesterday, it's already too bad. We want to walk up to the counter at whatever store we're at and they just hand us what we came in for. Yes, I'd like a well, thank you very much for having it. Thank you very much. We don't want to wait on God. I've confessed that to some people over the last few months. I don't want to wait on what I can't see. I don't want to hope in what's not here. I want to fix this now. I want to take everything I can in my power with these amazing, talented hands. Oh, what hands? Oh, <laughs> well, now I have no hands. Well, I'll use the nubs. What nubs? And God will continue to take away from us until we realize that we are not in control, but He is. That's what it feels like sometimes to wait upon the Lord. Well, I really need this in my life, or I really need to make this plan. Okay, then do it, have some prudence, use some wisdom. Oh, it didn't work out? Such is the Lord's purpose. Pain, suffering, disease, disaster, it's all in the Lord's purposes. And that doesn't make me feel good when I go, Blessed be the name of the Lord. I hate it. I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I'm some spiritual, I'm on some, some spiritual gummies or something. Yeah, everything's get I'm not, I mean, this is not, this is ridiculous. This is one of the reasons that the church is in such bad shape as it is in America. First and foremost, false gospel. Second, secondly, this overbearing burden of pretending to be what we're not. Be honest. It's okay to say, I'm not trusting the Lord right now. It's obvious. Quit lying about it. We know. And the good thing is, is when we're not trusting the Lord and we finally wallow out. Look, I made a comment last night, you know, the, 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 the UFC championships and stuff. You know, I don't follow that stuff anymore. I don't have time to follow that stuff. But it brought, came up in discussion with some folks, and I'm thinking, it, the bout was decided by decision? I mean, I can see boxing is a striking game. Okay, you got 20 points here, 20 points. How do you, ta- I mean, I held you down longer. And what is this? Not just keep going until somebody gives up, gives out, can't do it anymore. <gasps> just fall. Hey, he won. Why? Because he passed out. From what? Just tired. That's what it is in our spiritual lives. We can keep working and trying and harping on how we're going to handle it. We worry about everything. We borrow trouble. We put everything we can in our head. David was the king example of anxiety and emotionalism. And nobody would call David a wimp. Nobody would put their finger in the face of David. Lest they wanted it bit off. And serve to them for breakfast. Nobody. That's why he got away with what he did. Uh, David's uh, a little whiny. You tell him. I'm not telling him. You tell him. I guess we're singing this Psalm 51 then. I cried. wonder what he did. I don't know. Bathsheba's over there crying. I don't know what's happening. Can you imagine a church service like that? Would you come? Why is Bathsheba crying? Because David's singing a song about what he did to her. <laughs> in the church service. Nobody's going to tell. David wasn't a weakling, but he was a weakling. Because in all of his power, and all of his authority, I mean, what, is it, what does it mean to be anointed by God against every logical and legal means To become a king, he was not qualified, nor would anybody agree that he was qualified, nor would anybody put him in the place, but God did it anyway. David, every man, gosh, I wish I was as strong as David. Yeah, he's on his underwear at the altar crying. I guess David's a little sissy. Boy, don't you talk about the king. You see? You get the point that I'm driving home? Weakness. It's the essence of our human condition. And the strongest of us are the weakest of us. But the weakest of us are the strongest of us. (laughs) And that stinks. I don't want to be weak. But in order for me to be strong, I have to be weak. In order to have confidence, I have to have insecurity. In order to know the right way, I have to go the wrong way. In order to rejoice, I have to suffer. The theme of this psalm is just that. We see these divisions and the first ten chap, the first ten verses, is the fact that God, we can praise God. David praised God for His past power, for fulfilling His promises, and personally. This is a review. First three verses. David is speaking personally out of his own heart. I waited anxiously, labored horrendously. Remember, we talked about patience. Patience is not just being okay. Patience is fighting and resisting. Patience is not, yeah, it's good. Patience is, I'm going to kill somebody, but I won't. Patience is like, I I can't take this anymore. Have you ever prayed? I've been praying out loud when I drive in the truck. And one day, I'm going to butt dial one of you all and you're going to think, pastor has lost his mind. And it's true, I have. I've lost it. And I prayed yesterday. I was driving back from the grocery store. And I was just, I was excited and terrified at the same time about something. And I'm like, oh my God. I said, God, please, Father, you, why am I even trying to tell you what you need to do? You know what you need to do. I'm talking to him just like this. I said, this is, I just need you to do it. Now. That's patience. But whenever, Lord, you're going to do it. You're going to do it. So now be good. Last week would be good, just a second, right now, not now, now, but now, before I get home, God, I need wisdom, I need hope, I need strength, I need, and it's like, as I'm doing that, I'm going, and that's the point, I need him. You pray like that? If you don't, I suggest you start. If all of your prayers are like, oh, dear God, we thank you, Father, for all of the wonderful blessings of life. You ain't listening to your life. It's like the comedian said one time, the King James prayers, you know, O Lord of God that we come to thee before thy God before thy throne and all this other kind of stuff. He said, that's when everything's great, but when things are bad, it's just like, ah! You're awake now, aren't you? Crying out unto the Lord. Cry out unto the Lord. David personally cried out unto the Lord. Jesus Christ cried out unto the Lord. And if Jesus cried out unto the Lord, then David can cry out unto the Lord. Verses 4 and 5, David knew the personal reality of God's promises. He knew what it meant to put his trust in the Lord. How did he know it? Because he was such a stoic solid man after God's own heart. No, because he was an example of depravity. Great responsibility, great power, great purpose. What did he do? Just like, just like the son in Luke 15. He kept going to the pods of the pigs when he had the banquet of the father. That's what we do. That's what we do. That's why we approach each other with grace. We don't stick our nose into everybody else's business. Mm-hmm. You know what I'd be doing? I'd be checking to see if you wash your hands before you ate. That's it. You do that, I'm fine with anything else you do in life. Come see me when you need prayer. Just wash your hands and brush your teeth. and Don't use a towel twice. <laughs> Especially if it hits the floor. verses 4 and 5. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. Now I know how some people like to put that, yeah, see there, false doctrine and all that. Yeah, that's included in there. But most importantly, the lie of self-reliance. Most importantly, the lie that tells you that the reason that you're in this, Job, is because you're not doing like you should be doing. The lie that tells you, well, you just must not be called to the ministry because you're not happy. Well, if that's the case, I've never been called. That's not saying, well, you just, just might be called to eat if that food didn't taste good. I just, I'll just, i find something that tastes good later. This is nasty. Be honest. Life together with other people is nasty. You live with people, you know what I'm talking about. Don't lie. Y'all, we all look and smell a little better than we normally do when we come here and we get together. But we're gross. We just confine it to that restroom area, that bathroom area, that sink area. It's gross. I got a blue light. I got one of them little things like CSI. You want to look at it? I'll loan it to you. Where's Luke? Oh, no, he, he can't even be here today thinking about that. We're gross. We're spiritually in need. And so here, David... Is understanding and, and expressing his understanding that God's present providence is going to come forward. He's, he's exposing this. He's saying, hey, look, this is something that all of us can do. It's not just me. It's all of us. This is a song that was sung, and it teaches something, doesn't it? It teaches about who Christ is. It teaches the individuality of redemption. It teaches the plurality of, the, of, divin- of, of, of redemption. It teaches the promises of God are not just for this one man, the king, but for all those who sit. There's no difference in David as the king and the guy that's holding the towel to wash the dew off the whatever. Or the person that's standing in the back that didn't bathe. There's no difference. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust who does not turn to the proud. To those who are self-sufficient. To those who think they've got it all together, to those who are walking around with the with the posturing of spiritual elitism, with a false humility that they themselves are self deceived, and saying to others unspokenly, "You just gotta have faith." I don't know if that was Wham that said that or who, but you just—it's not worth it to live in those platitudes. You just got to have faith. You just got to trust God. You just got to, I don't know, stop overeating, stop undereating, stop lying, stop yelling, stop smoking, stop speeding. What have you got to do? You got to just know. (laughs) Don't go after your self sufficiency. you multiplied, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. That's a doxology, a praise. Nothing can compare with you, God, Father. So therefore, David's like, I will proclaim and tell of you, tell of them, what? Your wondrous deeds, your promises, your power, your providence for your people. And I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. So I'm going to continually always be praising God in the context of the assembly. We are to be doing that. But what do we do as humanity? See, this is where people get upset with me. Well, James, you're making an application here and that's not necessary. Yes, it is necessary. It's necessary for me to make application for us as a church. When we complain about everything in the world and when we ponder and fret rather than praise and pray, we have an imbalanced spiritual experience. It's an imbalanced spiritual experience. It's a decaying spiritual experience. Yet, there are times where there's nothing else we can do but the, the, the negative. So together, then we have the encouragement. It's not to rebuke. James, you, just, you need to just hush. No, I understand. I've been there. Remember what David said? I waited patiently for the Lord. Read Psalm 40. This very thing that I'm talking about right now is how I came to this text and God did His work through it for me two weeks ago. Yeah, maybe three weeks ago. So here, God can be praised personally. He can be praised corporately. And He can be praised in practice. Romans 12, I read it this morning. Look at verse 6. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Now, this is extremely Christ- Christocentric. This is, this is, I'll show you in a minute. But a personal practice. You've given me an open ear. You've allowed me to hear. And there's some contextual, there's some linguistic variations there that a lot of you who might be students of that might go, what? No. just trust me. It's like you bored open my ear and caused me to hear. Okay? That's sort of the essence of what's being said there. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, look, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is written in my heart. So here we see the outcome. God's practical instruction being lived out. God's power being lived out. God's power being, having, having teeth in the life of David we see the outcome of God's power and the resolve of David David's issues have not been fixed but David has come to a resolution and the point here in this text specifically is that this greatest this this great few verses six through eight here are specifically discussing Christ Remember, look at it. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted. Go to Hebrews 10. Yeah, we're not going to get through with this. For instance, the law has but a shadow of good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Those who practice, those who come, those who seek. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, so so Paul asks that question, and he's like, no, of course not, because it's forever. So then he explains, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin. Every single year. What? So when, they, when Israel would do their festivals and do their thing here in the context of, 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 of the annual offering for sin, it was every year the priests, the people, everybody came together to remind them of their sin, not cleanse them from their sin. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's impossible. What has the bull bull and the goat done? What worth do they have? What is God so low on the pole of highness that these people are sinful? Oh, you killed killed a goat. Nah, it's all right. Stepped on a roach. By all means, you're clean. That's not clean. That's nasty. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Now listen, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. As it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Isn't that amazing? I find that absolutely amazing. That here we see the words of Christ. The words of David being exactly the same. So remember how I started the sermon this morning talking about we see David's experience and expression, but we also see Christ and his perfection. There it is. And yet there's an addition here a body you have prepared for me. Not my will, but yours be done, Father. When Christ was in the Garden of Gethsemane and He knew that His death was imminent, He knew that the wrath of God would be poured out, that it was not just a death, it was an undeserved death, it was an anguish which He would feel emotionally and spiritually and physically, biologically and physiologically. It had a purpose that there would be no watering down of the suffering, there would be no reluctancy on His part to go, but He wasn't a fool. He knew that if there was a way his desire would be to avoid that, that pain. However, he also knew the promises of God the Father in the past and the power and the promises of God the Father in the present and he could hang on to the power and the promises of God the Father for the future. And Jesus Christ taught David that thousands of years before. Hundreds. Think about it. Psalm 40, I delight. You've opened my ear. You've given me the law. You've given me the truth. You've given me the gospel. You've given me revelation. You've given me understanding. Whatever you want to say in any sense, we know now that Jesus Christ is the point of that. Delight. It's gratitude. I mean, look, look back over that Psalm 40 real quick. God is not delighted in sacrifices, burnt offerings, or suffering, I mean, or, or, or sin offering, but He has delighted in His will being done. Two things to think about there. The will of God is done in the suffering of His people. The will of God is done in the suffering of his son. Paul would say these words. He would say, I am suffering. I'm going to paraphrase here and then I'm going to quote him. And in my body, and I'm in prison, and I'm, ang- I'm in anguish. I have this thorn in my flesh. I have this problem going on. It's not for us to understand the pit or the mire or the despair or the thorn. is for us to know that in any sense that we have any of those things, God is our deliverer. In Christ above all. So, Paul would say, therefore, I delight all the more in my suffering, rejoice in my suffering, that in my suffering, this is Paul speaking, I will fill up what is lacking in the suffering of Christ for your sake. It's a problematic text for us if we're not in the context. So let me unpack it in the light of this. Jesus Christ comes to do the will of the Father, which is to, in all righteousness, die as a substitute for His people, to carry their wrath upon Himself that His righteousness will be credited to them as their sin has been credited to him. So he did the will of the Father, and in his suffering, he makes us righteous. How? By satisfying the debt. Not personally, not even experientially, until glorification, when there's a new creation. But judicially, under the courts, under the law, it's righteous, you see. So now, Paul says similar things. Poor Paul, he's suffering, let's help him. Okay, they helped Paul. The Philippians helped Paul. A lot of people helped Paul. You meet needs as you can. But you can't can't always take suffering away. And when you're not experiencing or witnessing someone's rejoicing and suffering, when you're not there with them and they tell the story, it's always a little bit different than when you're there with them. And the same thing is true in the death of Christ, in the life of Christ. Remember we making mention of the fact that it's hard for me to want to really hold on to something that's not here when everything in my logical mind wants tangible, concrete, manipulatable, malleable, programmable things i want to make it work it doesn't work that way a lot of times there's so much distance between the death of christ and his suffering that it just becomes this journey of like a story we read about rather than something that we are really empathizing with but when we suffer and psalm 40 becomes our psalm and we see christ in it we all of a sudden go (laughs) there's a purpose in all this. Just like there was a purpose in the suffering of Christ. So when Jesus says, my body, but a body you have prepared for me, why did Jesus come? To be crushed by the will of the Father. To be destroyed. To be despised by men. To be hated by the very ones that supposedly held the banner of His name and coming. To be loathed, as the prophet Isaiah would say, to not even look like a human being. To be unrecognizable as human in his passion. Yet It was the will of the Lord to crush him. I am yours, David resolved. My body is yours. My suffering is yours. I am yours, I give myself to you, I quit. Lord, I just, just do whatever you're going to do. You see how you pray? Isn't that what Jesus says? And now we see this points to Christ. So no matter what, the seasons of life are going to be like this. These two blessed to be stressed, too anointed to be disappointed people are lying. And I'm not mocking them. I'm sad. Because there used to be a day when people like that would come around me. How you doing? And we always say, I'm great. How are you? Ah, the Lord is good. It's like this Broadway musical, like the clothes. You thought all the people were going to die. They almost got swept away by the flood. They almost got lost in the fire. And then they survived. Yay. There's no business like show business. And there's no greater show business than Christian people. And we're to be about the Lord's business and part of that is being honest about the suffering of Christ and its place in our life and our suffering open my ear let me hear let me know I am the servant who hears and does your will and what is the will of the Lord for David that he rejoice in his suffering what is the will of the Lord for Jesus Christ that he led on his life for his people Hebrews 10, 8. When He said, Above you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. Because these are offered according to the law. He added, Behold, I come to do your will. Behold, I come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, by the will of Christ, by the will of God, Christ, we have been set apart, sanctified, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So when every priest stands daily in his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool under his feet. For by one single offering, verse 14, he is perfected for all time those who are being set apart. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to this for us, or excuse me, to us. For after saying, this is my covenant that I will make with them. And after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. He then adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of sin of these, there is no longer any offering of sin. Beloved, there's no longer any offering of sin." And the psalmist knew it. But did not truly apprehend it. One of the reasons David was such, so mired in depression and fear and anxiety is because he was persecuted and hated so badly. And he was highly emotional and sensitive to the needs of people. And Highly self-centered. <laughs> you, don't, you don't find that concoction in one human being often. But in the midst of all of that, David sought to try to find solace in all sorts of things. He, he, he provided substitutes in his life often, rather than resting. And every time he would substitute this Missing need with something else. He found it wanting. So he'd go to something else and he found it wanting. Sound familiar? Solomon? Moses? Peter? Us? And then we come to the place and we go, Wow, I am full of unbelief. That's why our assurance has to be in the solid rock of Christ. Not our obedience. Not our working out. It has to be in Christ. Or we will always labor over our sin to such a degree that we will never feel assured of Christ's work. And so when we get to verse 9 of Psalm 40... We see what David has decided. God's promises for his people. He gives a public proclamation. He gets in there and he's talking about a public proclamation. Beloved, this is not God is good all the time and all the time God is good. This is being real about our testimony concerning Christ's testimony. Because at the end of the day... There's always going to be some suffering that will not be taken from us. It's not going to be taken from us. We're not going to escape everything. We're not going to escape it. We're not going to be able to over... We're not going to be able to be glad in spite of it because it's changed. I mean, we're not going to be able to be be, be glad because the circumstances have changed. We're going to have to be glad in spite of it. And that's ridiculous when the world comes along. And there's always a self-help option, right? I'm huge in thinking differently. Because the scripture teaches me to think differently. The scripture is not in odds with psychology or biology. They just didn't use those terms in that day. Because there weren't experts that had a lifetime to dedicate to thinking about one topic. We are so rich and blessed and lazy, it's ridiculous. That I can become an expert in applied theology. Metaphysics. Quantum physics. Isn't that weird? I think about the crap that I've got in my head and how it intertwines and overruns everything. And going, I've got a lot of time on my hands. And freedom. But the Bible isn't at odds with these things. It explains them correctly. So that as the philosophers and the scientists and the the brains of our day who don't see the gospel because it has not been revealed to them, they come up with the solutions, but they're empowered. These solutions are empowered by our ability rather than to resolve in God's ability. And I believe a majority of believing people by profession in the world that we live in today, presently alive, are saying they believe in uh, the God's ability, but they're truly resting in their ability. So our proclamation has to be the testimony of Christ Not the testimony of James. Why have you had a good day today? If I have followed the truth, my first response is going to always be, I thank God for it. Because if there's something else that I can say first, guess what happens when that answer is taken from me? (laughs) I've had a good day. Because I got a new pair of shoes. And then you step on my shoes by accident. And you scuff them up. Or my dog, who ate a brand new bag full of gloves yesterday morning that I just bought to replace the one she ate the day before. Any dog burgers for lunch? Um, Then my joy is gone. I got new gloves. I've had a good day. My gloves are chewed up. Ah, my day's over. Remember me telling you last week about... Tearing up my glasses. The day's over. Life's over. The world's over. Well, have you had a good day? You know what? I just got up with the right attitude. And then cans fall down on your bare feet in the kitchen when you're cleaning up. Seven cans of beans that I put in wrongly because I'm too tall to see the bottom shelf. So I'm like standing on my head. When I close the thing, it falls, it hits. Guess what? My attitude was bad Friday night during that 45 seconds of bean pain. So if my day is good because I have a better attitude about it, boom, there's some beans, boy. How's your attitude now? See, and the Broadway show goes on. It's ridiculous. Christ is on the throne and He's on the throne of my life and He's on the throne of my bean foot and my chewed gloves and my broken glasses and He's on the throne of every problem that you have. Deeper than that. And i got a lot of bad deep problems. You don't want to hear them. Because then they'll be your problems. Beloved, the Lord's Word is sufficient for our joy. It is sufficient. Not even my preaching is absolutely good all the time, nor is it right all the time, nor is it sufficient all the time, but the promise of God through preaching says that if I stick to the text and we hear the Word of God, even when the explanation is a rabbit trail to nowhere, He will fulfill His promises to teach us and give us joy. You know what a load that is off of me? You know how I got there? By God taking my ability to even study the word for a season. As for you, O Lord, verse 11, I mean, excuse me, verse 9, I I, I skipped it. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. That's what I just did. You see? I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I'm not pretending like you didn't work. I'm not telling everybody, I just got it together. Brushed myself off, pulled myself up by my bootstraps. There's no self made man in the world, especially spiritually. I've not hidden your deliverance in my heart. I've spoken of your faithfulness and of your salvation. I've not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the congregation. Do not hide the truth. Do not hide the truth. Christ did not hide the truth. He did not hide the truth of Him coming to redeem Himself by the will of the Father. He proclaimed it He proclaimed the Father. He taught it and they hated him for it. Beloved, we are not going to win friends and influence people by telling the truth of Christ. Covey got it wrong. You can tell how old I am now. The gurus of my day. I don't know, that might still be a thing. I don't know. We're not going to do it. That's just a repurpose of Carnegie anyway. We're not going to do it. We're going to just exist for the sake of Christ, for the sake of one another. We're going to love each other. We're going to invest in each other's lives. And we're going to do so in much, with much trepidation and many trials. And we're going to have small seasons of absolute celebration. We, we weep with those who weep. And we rejoice with those who rejoice. And, beloved, we will do well to be honest about what Christ has done. So that our joy will be found in him alone. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for what you've shown us this far in this text. And as we continue here, Lord, I thank you that, I thank you, Lord, that you're faithful, that you're glorious and powerful. And you've purposed in Christ the rejoicing. So, Lord, as we continue to unpack this text in in the next few weeks, Lord, help the perfect picture of Jesus be simple and easy for us to see. And as we revisit, Lord, this thing in a fully Christological lens, Lord, help us to truly be at peace. To truly see Jesus. To truly know and understand that there is purpose in our pain. But Father, also teach us not to forsake your promises. To know that together we are stronger than being alone. Lord, that you have called us to be a people. Lord, help us to be sensitive to each other's needs. Help us to be sensitive to to how we relate to one another, Lord, and how we pray for each other. So, Father, help us to pray boldly that you would help each of us rest in brokenness and humility and weakness so that we can say to the world, Christ is my strength. And truly mean it. And when called upon, truly explain how. So as we take the table, as we continue to worship through song, Father, we thank you for your amazing grace and your love toward us. And we pray these things in Christ. Amen.